as Mother's Day is coming around, oh, I find I'm missing my mom more and more. And there's always questions and stories I wish I had asked her when she was still here. I do remember that I gave her a book once upon a time with questions for her to write the answers to. And bless her heart, she didn't answer very many. So that was really a disappointment. But fast forward to now and technology. And now we have mylifeinabook.com. It takes all those questions and stories and it puts it in a format that is sent to your person, whoever you designate, on a regular basis so that the prompts come, they're easily answered either written or voice to text, and they're captured by mylifeinabook.com. These family stories, this legacy that you want to leave for your children and your grandchildren. Mylifeinabook.com, create an unforgettable gift for your mom, your dad, your children this Mother's Day. Use our coupon code ONBOYS for 10% off. Go to mylifeinabook.com and use ONBOYS for 10% off. Create that legacy. Carry on those stories. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison. Our guest today has been in the news a lot lately. She's written a best-selling book, and we'll be telling you all about that. But I want you to recognize that she is still saying we have failed our boys. She writes... We failed our boys and our failure amounts to a public health crisis. This is so important. That's me, not her. She says they face staggering levels of physical and sexual violence, suicide rates that are climbing, tight constraints on who and how they can be, and so much shame and fear. We simply have not given boys what they need to build relationships with themselves, with other boys and men, and with girls and women, and she is changing the tide with her very important new book, which we're going to dive into right after these messages from our sponsors. Do you worry about the quality of your boy's diet? I do. My third son, Adam, stopped drinking milk when he was two. We learned later that he's lactose intolerant. And for years, even now, his primary food group is popcorn. I worry about his nutritional intake and I thought about giving him vitamins, but I was not thrilled with what I saw out there. So many vitamins for kids are filled with sugar and unhealthy chemicals, and they're based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 1980s. I wish Haya vitamins had been around then. These are different. They are made from a blend of 12 farm fresh organic fruits and veggies, and they don't contain any of the sugar and gummy junk that your kids don't need. My Adam is now 17, so he's a little old for chewable vitamins. I gave him some anyway, and he gives Haya a thumbs up. 
I'm so glad that they tested them. We did too, because we're not going to promote anything that we haven't tried. And we've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya Health for these best-selling children's vitamins. This is just for you, our On Boys podcast listeners. Receive 50% off your first order. So to claim this deal, you must go to Haya health.com slash on boys h-i-y-a-h-e-a-l-t-h.com slash on boys receive 50 percent off your first order get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults that is hiahealth.com h-i-y-a-h-e-a-l-t-h.com slash on boys and that full discount will be applied at checkout. And let us know how your kids like their new vitamins. You've heard me talk about the Building Boys Bulletin before. This is a subscription news recap that my co-host Jennifer L.W. Fink puts together every single week. She scans the news so you don't have to. And I tell you what, This is one of the first emails I open every Monday morning, and I so appreciate being able to scan the latest hot topics about what's happening in the world with boys. You can also be a subscriber for a very low cost. Go to buildingboys.net and you'll see the subscribe link there. Get signed up. You will not regret having this treasure trove of information every single Monday morning. I use it and you will benefit from it too. That's Building Boys Bulletin, buildingboys.net. Click that subscribe button. And now Emma Brown is our guest and I cannot wait for you to hear this important conversation. This is what I want for my son as he grows up the ability to be himself without paying a social penalty. Those words by author Emma Brown, deep in her new book, To Raise a Boy, are what I want for my boys too. And it's probably what you want for yours. I've been fighting for that for more than two decades, and I'm going to be straight with you. I was a little bit outraged when I heard that Brown, the investigative reporter who broke the Christine Blasey Ford, Brett Kavanaugh story, was writing a book about boys. And some of that, I will admit, was purely professional jealousy. But a lot of it was that I am so sick and tired of people who know nothing about raising boys, the reality of raising boys, writing books about raising boys. I take it all back, you guys. I take it all back. Brown's book is essential reading, and I really think it is going to make a difference because she admits honestly in her book that when she started, she didn't think boys were harmed or hurt by gender expectations. And to have somebody admit that straight up, I really think is going to change the conversation. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Wow. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks for that introduction. I appreciate it. So tell us when you started this project and, you know, the background, obviously the Me Too movement was going through the country. You were at the the forefront of, you know, one corner of this. You were 
um, breaking this story of sexual harassment. Many of us saw, you know, the hearings, the confirmation hearings for Kavanaugh. So this is the backdrop that's going on in our society. And you had recently had a son. You already had a daughter. So kind of tell us about your mindset when you started digging in. Yeah, thanks. Well, this the the path to this book really started when my son was six weeks old and I was home on maternity leave and the first Harvey Weinstein stories broke. And then, you know, I was like nursing him as I was scrolling through those stories mm -hmm. and then all, the flood of Me Too stories that came after that. And I was thinking, uh, wow, how am I going to raise my son to be different than this? Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I realized you know, I had had a daughter three years earlier. And when she was born, I had really strong instincts about how I wanted to parent her to, to resist the, the messages that are beamed at girls from the time they're tiny, because I had been a girl and I knew right. what those messages were. <laughs> um, but when my son was born, I mean, I, I realized I had no idea uh, how to parent him um, because I didn't know what those messages were. And, and as you said in that introduction, I really, I realized I had never grappled with the, even the idea that boys dealt with pressures and stresses and struggles in the same way that girls do around gender expectations. Uh, so this book was my, gave me a, gave me a way to travel around the country and talk to people, talk to coaches and teachers and researchers. And of course, parents and boys and young men themselves um, to try to understand what it's like to be a boy in America right now and also to understand what we can do better for boys. So that's where this all, that's where all this all started and, and where it came from. Big topic. So important. Big, big topic. And I think it, what you said is true for so many of us. First of all, um, you know, when the Weinstein story broke, all of us looked at our boys. How do we not raise that like nobody wants to have the next Harvey Weinstein and it um it instills a sense of fear I think in a lot of us that unfortunately feeds some of our fear-based parenting you know I think sometimes as parents we can overreact because if they make you know one off-collar comment we're like ah, ah so there's that side to it and then uh, this idea that boys are affected by gender expectations. Those of us who grew up as girls don't really know that until we have sons. What did you learn about how these gender expectations hem in boys? I think the main sort of overwhelming takeaway for me was that shame is such a corrosive force for all of us and that boys just face so many so many opportunities to feel shame um, because of those expectations around what it means to be a boy and, and boys who sort of try to push against those boundaries, they quickly come to teasing or even physical violence um, or, uh, or other ways they're made to feel bad and like they're not good enough. And so, you know, I think the shame comes from basically anything that makes a boy seem girly or gay and that's from the superficial, like pink, you like pink to the more deep and lasting and, and perhaps important, like you, uh, you, you express your emotions freely, you cry, you're um, deeply connected to the people around you. Like these are all things we want for all of our kids, I think. And yet boys are told in so many ways that they're not allowed to do those, you know, do some of those things that are so important to being human. 
Well, and what we're up against here is that it starts so early. I have a uh, coaching client who has a four-year-old boy who wants to wear a skirt, who wants to wear earrings, and the parents are completely on board with this. And he told his mom, but the other kids will laugh at me. As a four-year-old to already have that information from his peers. We're we're up against a lot here. And it's hard well, they, as a as a parent because sometimes you may be totally on board with it, but also you ran across this research in your book, Emma. You know, you also want to protect your son, like which is worse, protecting him from the teasing or exposing him to the teasing. There's a complicated calculus. And boys are in that position a lot, aren't they, Emma? Yeah, they really are. Yeah, you, you referenced them. I, I spoke to a father whose eight-year-old son wanted an American Girl doll. And this father had grown up in, in the 80s in Chicago um, in a community where, you know, you had to be tough um, if you were a boy. Uh, there was no other no other option. And so he's, you know, trying to be a dad who embraces everything about his son. And yet when his son says, I want an American Girl doll, he immediately fears that that's going to put his son in a position of what you just said, of being teased um, or being hurt. Um, and so boys absolutely are in that position and sort of navigating that decision and that line, I think, every day when they leave their homes and, and walk out into the world, if they're lucky enough to have a home where they can truly be themselves. And, you know, what What um, Judy Chu from Stanford told me was the most important thing is to give your son that gift of being able to be himself at home. So he has a a place that he can always come back to and know who he is. That's a message that we try and reinforce on here because we can't change the culture immediately. We can't change schools immediately. We're certainly not going to change all the teen and tween boys immediately, but it does help if you have, and if you are a safe place for your son to feel like who he is, okay, who he is, is okay. That can make such a difference. Yeah. You know, one of the parents I met in the course of this reporting who inspired me was a dad in Pennsylvania who, um, when I met him and his son, his son was in eighth grade and they walked the dog every day around the block. And that was a time when his son was able to bring to him whatever was on his mind. And they just had like a really, his dad was very straight with him and, and open and honest and the time I spent with them, the warmth between them was just super clear. Um, and and he, they were able to talk about things that I hope I'm able to talk about with my kids when they're at that age. Um, my kids are now three and six, so I have a ways to go. But um, but yeah, I think his, his son was under a lot of social pressure at school to, he, he identified as a feminist, for example, and he teased all the time for being a social justice warrior or um, you know, for being for being politically liberal in his school, uh, but he he could come home and know that that's he was okay being who he was. It's like getting fueled up again, right? To yeah, to face the world again. Which, gosh, we wish our kids didn't have to do that. Didn't have to put on their suit of armor to go out and be at school, be with their friends when when this is at issue. You know, partly due to high profile news stories like the Weinstein case and so many others, and we can all rattle off a litany of names inside our head. 
there's kind of been this narrative over recent years that males are predators, boys are potential predators. And this has been reflected in some, I believe, well-meaning attempts. You know, we want to educate our children about sexual violence. Everybody agrees that decreasing sexual violence is a good thing. Uh, There's disagreement how we go about that, and that's fair. The first part of your book is really powerful and very difficult to read because you talk about something that is not often covered and you found, hey, this isn't just girls who are victimized. Boys are victimized too. And unless and until we start talking about that, we're not going to get too far. Yeah, this was one of the most um, shocking and sort of profoundly transformative findings of my research just for me, um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, um, you're right. We often talk about sexual violence as if it's something that happens to girls and women only. And certainly it does happen to girls and women and disproportionately so, but the, it happens way too often boys and men as well. And I think, you know, it's hidden um, and it's hidden for a lot of reasons. One is um, that the, all of the stereotypes that that exist about boys, you know, that they're supposed to be tough and they're supposed to be dominant um, and they're never supposed to show weakness. I mean, all of those things make it so hard for a and boy. And they're supposed to want to, sex. Yes. You know, too. I mean, that's another huge factor that comes into play. Like, how could that be assault? Because come on, you were lucky. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there are just so many, I mean, the FBI, I wrote in the book, the FBI didn't even have a um, definition that for rape that could possibly include men until 2012. 2012 which me, people like 2012. That was not yesterday at all. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of baked in things in our culture and in our media and in our, um, in our institutions, right. That make it hard to recognize that, that part of boys' experiences in the world. I think, I, I think we have to go there. I think you have to give us an example. What are you talking about? And I think we have to put a trigger warning in the beginning of this episode, because this is really troubling, really troubling stuff. You talked about um, sports teams. So what's going on? And this place yeah. that I think the thing for me that was shocking reading it is it's like, it's accepted in that, like, if you're on a sports team as a freshman, this is what happens. And then you move up to sophomore, and then you get to observe. And then maybe as junior, then you're part of the part of the hazing or part of the assault, let's call it what it is. And, and it's accepted. And it's not talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to preface this by saying, I think that boy, you know, we think about boys, being sexually assaulted or raped um, in the context of like the Catholic church scandal or boy scouts scandal, you know, adult men preying on younger boys. And that that is only one slice of what, what we're talking about when we talk about boy sexual victimization, right? So um, boys can be uh, assaulted or they can be assaulted by girls and they can be assaulted by other boys. And so I wrote about a couple of examples in the book about um, boys being sexually assaulted or raped in the context of 
their sports teams. And I'm avoiding using the word hazing because I think, um, you know, as Adele Kimmel, who's a, a lawyer who represented one of these boys said that hazing tends to sound, tends to sort of minimize what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, so in one case, I'll give, well, I'll give one example. Actually, I'll give, I'll give two examples, um, because they show different things. Um, a high school freshman on the varsity basketball team. So you can imagine the power dynamics there um, went away on a, on a tournament a couple hours from, from their homes. This is in Tennessee and they team stayed in a cabin together and the older boys were, were basically serially attacking the freshmen on the team um, with, they were ramming a, pool pool cue into the boy's anuses, one after the other. And so this boy who I call Martin in the book, he, he knew this was happening to other boys and he wanted, he really wanted to call his mom and tell her what was about to happen to him because he was afraid. And he said in a court deposition, he said, I, I, I I tried to tell her, I just didn't know how to say it. And, um, what ended up happening was he, it it did happen to him. These older boys pulled him onto a bed and they really seriously injured him to the point that he had to go to the hospital and have emergency surgery. And the, the uh, detective who worked on the case, I mean, the the boys who were involved as perpetrators were ultimately charged with um, uh, rape uh, or, or, um, assisting, assisting the rape in some way. But the detective who was involved sort of questioned whether this could really be sexual assault because it didn't, it wasn't really sexual. And I think that that gets at this question of like, what, what is sexual assault and what is it when it happens to boys? Well, this was really, as, as the young man involved, Martin said um, to a lawyer who was questioning him, it was about power. It was about the older boys showing who was in charge in a re- in, and humiliating the younger boys in the most, you know, dramatic, profane and terrible way. And so, um, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll just give that one example example for now. I just need to, I just need to pause right there because like, that's the kind of story that breaks your heart. If you are the mother of a boy, and especially if you're the mother of a queen, a teen who plays sports, because like you can picture the whole thing. And what I mean is you can picture this boy's discomfort. He's in this cabin. You write in the book about him hearing screams and knowing what's going on. And he wanted to call his mom. I believe, was he even on the phone with his mom at one point, Emma? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, as a mom, you you deal with that. And what do I do? What do I do? How can I make it so that, you know, if this is happening, that my son knows to say something so I can get him the hell out of there so he doesn't end up in the hospital. And so he doesn't end up being the boy ramming a pool stick up somebody else's ass. <sighs> yeah. You know, well, and I, I know that you're not going to have an easy answer, but let's, let's talk about that. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. 
You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is, deal with it. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, Increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit. With free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time, your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. Well, that is absolutely the question that this raises, right? And I think um, I think we have to tell boys what we tell girls about their bodies, which is that their bodies are their own. Their bodies are sacred and nobody should touch their bodies in, without their permission. And I think what we often do with boys, I mean, people laugh off boys beating each other up, for example, um, as just like that's part of boyhood and a rite of passage. 
advantage. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there's so many ways that boys learn that their bodies are not their own. Uh, so we, as parents, I think, have to counteract that by making sure that they know that their bodies are their own. And if somebody, um, if somebody hurts them, whether that means in a sexual assault or some other way that they, they can come to us and we will believe them and we will take care of them and we will love them. You just made me think of something. You said there are so many ways that boys learn their bodies aren't their own. And it suddenly flashed in my mind that, yeah, there's been societal reasons we've taught them that. How else do we get our boys to lay down their lives, to go to war, Mm -hmm. to do Mm -hmm. all these things? Like there's this whole socialization that has happened and it was beneficial. I'm putting beneficial in air quotes. It was beneficial in some ways for society, but things that were once beneficial or got through a time period doesn't mean it's functional or healthy now. And that's, that's where we're at. And I know this is where I I often feel frustrated as a parent of teens currently. And I feel so much empathy for um, boys growing up right now. It came through in your book that you do as well, Emma, like You've got boys who on one hand are trying to navigate these shifting gender norms and they're aware of them. At the same time, their world has not fully embraced these newer norms. I'm thinking too of this idea, you know, of course, for the military to be able to separate boys from their bodies, absolutely. But um, we just had a football player at a prominent high school in Portland take his life this week. And the pressure of being on, you know, he was college ready to go. And again, that separation, we want your body, basically. I mean, the NFL is all about, we want your, we want your muscles. We want your power. We want your speed, your brain, not so much, your activism, not so much. We want your body so that we have a spectator sport, basically. And I mean, that goes back to the gladiators that goes back to Roman times that we, you know, we get pleasure out of watching someone else tear up their bodies and separating from that. I'm also thinking about another mom that is is a coaching client has has this dilemma. And I really think this is this is common. Her son is 11 and girls are starting to take an interest in him. And the way that is brought by girls and Jen, I think I remember that you wrote an article about aggressive girls and Mm -hmm. here's this, you know, sweet little boy. He's been home for a year and now he's back with, with his peers. And a girl is saying, you know, write on this piece of paper, zero to 10, how much you like me. And, you know, he's just, he's 11. He's like, what's going on? And then she's hitting him with a stick And the mom's in this dilemma of like, well, she's awkwardly trying to show interest and it's not okay to let her hit you with a stick. And the message is you need to be kind. And so, I mean, it's just this swirl of how to, you know, help him navigate his peers basically at such, with such immaturity and, and, and likely with more mature girls, because that's, we know that that, especially in those tween years, that's the dynamic is often the girls are a little more mature than the boys and have that interest before the boys do. And, 
yeah, so this mom is just in a quandary about how do I how do I guide my boy to a be kind, but also, as you said, Emma, like it's his body and it's not okay to be hit by someone with a stick. No easy. It answer. sounds like though they have a good, I mean, it's pretty great that he can tell her what is troubling him and she can offer guidance. Like, yeah. Yeah. How, how wonderful that she has the chance to, to help him, you know? Yeah. Although she's not really clear on how to help him because it is that dilemma of, you know, well, she wants to tell you she likes you. She wants to be friends and it's awkward. Tell her to stop. But yeah, you don't want to make her mad or feel bad or all those things that we do as humans. It's, you know, it's interesting, Emma, because you write in your book, um, boys can be coerced into sexual activity too. As women, I think we're all familiar with and can probably name some examples, you know, where somebody engages in some kind of sexual activity just to get it over with um, because to do otherwise would be rude. Uh, now, Janet, you're talking about an 11 year old and it's not at that point yet, but, but Emma, you, you discovered that talking to high school and college age boys. That's true. I mean, I think, uh, I think boys can be on either end of that. Um, you know, if we don't, especially if we don't sort of have open conversations with them about what it means to have respectful relationships, they can, they can be on the side of coercing someone without even realizing that what they're doing is necessarily wrong. If we haven't told them, right. Um, you know, that, 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 but, and then on the other end of it, absolutely. I, I talked to, this was a, um, a few years ago now, I, I, uh, I worked with a bunch of colleagues on a project around sexual assault on college campuses. And I interviewed a young man who, who told me he's from MIT um, talking about, you know, this, this young woman was pursuing him and he didn't want to be rude. He didn't want to make her feel bad. Just all of those things you were saying, Janet. Um, and so he, he couldn't, he couldn't quite figure out how to say no. And yeah, I mean, I, as a woman can relate to that feeling. And I think that the idea that boys and men can feel that way too, is something that we often don't talk about or, and don't help boys sort of figure out how to, how to navigate. Right. Cause as you said earlier, um, Jennifer, they, they're told they're supposed to always want sex. Like you must be really weird if you're not feeling it. Right. Um, cause you're supposed to always want it. And so it's important. We help boys starting when they're, you know, starting when they're young, think through those stereotypes and know that they are just that just stereotypes. They're not reality. You know, I, as I was writing that article that you referred to Janet, you know, about helping boys deal with sexually aggressive girls, and I'll put the link in the show note. I realized, number one, we have to talk to boys and explicitly let them know it's okay to not want sex. Mm-hmm. Dispel that stereotype that you were talking about, Emma. And then I realized that the flip side of that is, well, then we also have to talk about, like, if these are bad reasons for having sex, then these are good reasons for having sex. Because it's, you know sex is. It's a thing. It can be a very good thing. So if we just keep saying all the, this is why you shouldn't, they know we're leaving out half the story. (laughs) They know that. And so it becomes a little uncomfortable. And I think sometimes without even realizing it, we parents, teachers, coaches shy away from those conversations because that gets a little bit messy. 
Oh, you're so right. We have to like recognize the fact that our kids are going to grow up and at some point they are going to have sex. And, um, and we can, like, if we only talk about, for example, no means no, then we're not talking about when then is it okay to say yes or all of that. I mean, we, we're talking about parenting, right? And, and so much of it does fall in parents. And so many parents don't have those conversations because they are kind of hard or kind of awkward. But parents can use some support as well from other people, right? Like the other the other folks who are helping us raise boys, whether that's like your religious community or your schools or athletic teams. You yes. know, I wrote in the book about the this program called Coaching Boys into Men that has been, it's been successful both anecdotally and according to some pretty gold standard research in helping boys have more respectful relationships. And it's literally like 15 minutes a week, your coach who, you know, a lot of boys look up to their coach, um, talking, uh, coaches holding discussions with players about dignity and respect and intimacy and like all of these things that boys actually really want to talk about, right. And want guidance on, um, and they're getting it from someone they, they, they look up to. I think what's so powerful about that program and others like it as well is we have seen numerous examples of the influence and power of the team and coaches and the culture. And so it's not even just that you're talking about this. It's that the fact that you're talking about this means you're not tolerating all of this other stuff. And that is so powerful as a parent. I'm like, yes, please, 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 please more of that because I can't do this all alone. I am one voice in a very, very loud chorus. Yeah. And there's a place absolutely for mom's voice, for women's voices. But bottom line, boys are going to listen to men and they are watching men and seeking out those role models. So being sure that we are check out your coach and what is he talking to the boys about? These are fair questions to ask. Recently, President Biden um, created the Gender Policy Council within the White House, and it's called the Gender Policy Council, but its stated aims are at helping women and girls and addressing some of the issues that continue to affect women and girls. We're all women. We are very familiar with what those are. We know where we've been. We know what progress we've made. We know there's still progress to be made. Some of us have suggested that, you know, if we're going to call it a gender policy council, especially that it would be really nice if we could pay attention to and address some of these issues that you brought up in the book, sexual violence against boys, uh, suicide rates of boys are through the roof. Academically, our boys are struggling. And yet there seems to be a lot of resistance to looking in a concentrated way at boys issues. What do you make of that now that you've done this book and this research and talked to people all around the country? Well, I'm not familiar with the particulars of the debate around the Gender Policy Council, but I think one of the things that uh, stood out to me as I was doing this work was um, how quickly, and this is no surprise because gender is always in some, you know, has always been and probably will always be in some sense political, but I think... um, when I would call people to tell them about this book or tell them I'm working on a book about boys, tell them I'm working about a book about raising boys after me too. I think there's, um, there's a lot of trepidation around how, how that, you know, how that gets 
translated politically. And, um, you know, I just noticed it in talking with people where they were trying to sometimes assess out like where I was coming from and really where I was coming from was trying to get facts and coming from a place of empathy for boys. But I guess that's what I, I guess, uh, don't know that that's so insightful, but just that it's a pretty chart, you know, the boys are, um, um, it's sort of a politically charged issue, I think. Yeah. And I think that comes from this notion and I still have mamas ask me this even now is, why boys, you know, and, you know, men are still running the country and men are still prominent CEOs. And why do we have to worry about our boys? And this is, this is what we're talking about here is actually we do have to worry about our boys. And if we have to politicize it, if that's, what's going to take the sea change that needs to happen in this country, then there we go. We got to we got it. Well, I don't know. I would hope that it could be um, be seen as less political because there are parents of every stripe, political stripe, right, who are who are worried about their sons and worried about the the world their sons are entering, right, and their sons' chances at um, thriving in that world. And so, like, I I wrote this book, um, you know, as a news reporter. I wrote it as a news reporter and as a mom and as a political, as an apolitical mm-hmm. observer of what I was reading and, and coming and, you know, learning from the people I was talking to, because I do believe that, that these, the, the challenges that boys face are of concern to people across the political spectrum. The part that has frustrated me as a boy mom is that I think we're starting to make progress. And you bring up this point um, in, in the book, you know, Boys who are hurt and harmed, whether through sexual violence or other kinds of abuse, right, often become people who hurt other people. So there is self-interest, you know, there's self-interest for all of us. We will all be safer if we make the world a better place for boys. And I've seen that used as as a selling point as to why we should care about boys. And sometimes I get frustrated because I want to be like, isn't it just enough that they're hurting? Like, can't it just be about they are human? What do they need from us to help them thrive? And that's what I hear you saying. I know that's what you want for your son. It's what you want for your daughter. There are these humans. What can we do to help them thrive as human beings in the world? I wasn't familiar with a lot of the um, disparate outcomes between men and women or boys and girls before I started working on this book, and I'm talking about mental health, you mentioned suicide rates being so much higher for males, um, physical health, um, life expectancy, you know, uh, these things were not at my fingertips um, before I began this book. And learning about them was, it sort of bowled me over. We do need to do better for boys because they're they're hurting. Um, But because i started this book as a, as a, you know, and my, the roots of the book were kind of in this me too question of, gosh, I, I want to give my son the skills he needs to thrive in relationships and, and not be somebody who abuses other people. It was also really important for me to understand that these two things are not different questions, right? They're, they are tied together. That's so important. They are not different questions. It is all tied together. Now, it takes a long time to write a book. 
it takes a long time to do the research to write a book like this. And then there's that whole publishing period. So obviously, you know, you did your research, you wrote, and life has gone on. What have you seen in that, in the interim, that uh, gives you hope, that concerns you? Well, it's been a pretty weird time since I finished writing the book because basically, you know, the pandemic has changed (laughs) our lives (laughs) in so many ways that uh, when you say hope, I'm like, oh, oh, I hope there's, (laughs) we can all like have social lives again someday, you know, and our sons can go to school. Um, So that's a pretty, that's been a pretty overwhelming part of that sort of interstitial. Yes. Yes. (laughs) How could I have forgotten that when I even phrased that question? Yeah. The pandemic (laughs) happened, Jen. But I think, I mean, just the, the, the work of reporting the book, I actually finished it really hopeful. I met so many boys who are not only thinking about these issues, but leading on these issues in their own communities. And I I met so many people and organizations that are um, trying to give boys those spaces to consider what it means to be a boy, to expand, you know, the possibilities of being a boy that I mean, though, I I really, I think I started the book with some trepidation and some fears, and I still have plenty of fears, don't get me wrong, about my son and about what it's going to be like for him as he grows up. But I just think like we're in a period now where people are taking, people are taking seriously the special challenges that boys face and trying to do something about it. Not everywhere to be sure. Right. But, but in a lot of communities and a lot of different kinds of communities, I mean, there are stories in this book from Chicago and from Maine and from suburban San Francisco. So it's, it's not everywhere, but it's like, I see it in so many places that it feels like things are, are changing. We're gathering steam, Janet. Yeah. <laughs> Momentum, baby. This is good. And Emma, you, you are. you guys think so? Or do you think uh, you've been doing this a long, you know, so much longer than I am? I just a Pollyanna? What do you think? We've been doing the podcast for three years, just watching our numbers of people that are listening, of people that are commenting and responding and from Canada to the UK to uh, talked with a family in Prague the other day that listens to our podcast, Australia. When the conversation goes global, I really believe that change, change is possible. I think that right now, most of the change is still at the individual and family mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Most of it. You, you've, um, you highlight in your book some really excellent suggestions where communities and organizations are leading. You wrote about the Becoming a Man Project in Chicago, which I interacted with a few years ago, like incredible program. You mentioned the, the coaching boys into men. So there's, there's organizations happening. I don't think that we've yet reached consensus on a societal level that we need to care about our boys and... As you said, it's become in some corners very politicized, and I don't think it has to be either. Um, So I'm hopeful, and I'm also not necessarily expecting that this is all going to change right away. Reading your book, reflecting on my life, um, listening to you write about your son, I kind of found myself almost a little jealous that your son is, is two now, you know, like, I feel like he's got a better shot at coming up with these lessons being taught to him than my boys. The youngest is 15. The oldest is 23. 
where I was raising them in a time when we weren't grappling with these questions as much or as honestly. There weren't, um, there weren't as many articles talking about things like boys and emotional regulation and consent. And so the needles, the needles moving. And that is a very hopeful thing. You know, your son is only 20 years behind my oldest, but he's going to get a different path through and there's going to be challenges. Of course there will be, but we're moving in the right direction. Emma, thank you for your voice. It's so important. Tell us. Well, thank um, you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the chance to talk with you too. The full title of your book is To Raise a Boy, Classrooms, Locker Rooms, Bedrooms, and the Hidden Struggles of American Boyhood. I'm sure people can find this anywhere they can buy books, right, Emma? That's right. And audiobooks too, if you're into listening. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I know the pandemic still got everything weird, but are you doing any like promotional talks online? If people want to know more, can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am doing a virtual book tour and they, they can, folks can um, look at toraiseaboy.com and all of the events and the details for registering are there. They're all free and open to the public. And I'd love for folks to come and, and ask questions and, and um, engage on these issues. Thank you for exposing these issues. These struggles have been hidden for too long, but they're not going to be much longer because your book is going to be widely read and it's going to change the conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I, I hope you're right. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> thank you, Emma. Have a great day. Thanks for joining On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.